This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear Stephen Estock and Matt Lukenbill explore where student ministry has been, where it's going, and share practical advice for elders, volunteers, and staff. Stephen is coordinator of CDM, the PCA's Committee on Discipleship Ministries, and Matt is the Youth Ministry Coordinator for CDM. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2023 General Assembly. Let's listen in as Stephen and Matt share their wisdom, advice, encouragement, and insight into the future of student ministry. So, here's our t- task. Now, we're going to talk to you a little bit more, and these guys can tell you more. What we're trying to do as a team is how can we serve the church? How can we help leaders in the church? And so one of the things, we have conferences in children and women's ministry. And so our student ministry team said, let's do that in the area of youth ministry or student ministry. Matt Lukenbill is on staff there in Ferndale, Michigan, right outside Detroit. One of the things the team said is we don't want to be in the southeast. We want to be out of the southeast. And so we picked Detroit. In the fall, though, it was in the fall, not Detroit in January, in the fall. And then we're going to have plenaries with teaching elder Mark Long, who's done uh, a career of student ministry, and then workshops particularly by our student ministry. The next thing we have is Next Gen Podcast. I do invite you, if you're not familiar with it, it's on iTunes and Spotify, and just look PCA Next Gen. And our team works together to interview each other and interview people in the denomination. One of the very popular ones is one by Walt Mueller, who is chairman of the Center for Parent and Youth Understanding. It's, Walt's ministry is something you need to know about to tell your parents about how to talk and how to engage with the culture, especially as the culture is becoming more and more secular. Walt's done a lot of good stuff on that, and he has some research to help go behind how do we engage parents and children and youth with that. Uh, Another thing that we're starting, we we have children's ministry. We've done that since 2019, and this is a certification program. What I task our team to do is say, imagine somebody starting out in this type of ministry. What would you as an experienced ministry person teach that person? What, 12 topics? And so I remember the student ministry team got together. They had 36 topics up on the wall 
<laughs> we're going to have a two-year program. And I said, well, let's hone it down a little bit. And now they're down to 12. And uh, let's see, Steve is sort of part of that team heading this up. And this is going to start 2023, just in a couple months. And it's a 12-month video-based program with members of our team teaching and then also uh, mentors in the local church to help contextualize. But uh, Steve would be the one to talk about how we're coming up with that. So what do we do with NextGen? That's a question all of our churches are facing. Well, we're applying the Word of God. Now, some of you might look at this in Deuteronomy 6 and say, wait a minute, we use that for children's ministry. Yes, we do. That is correct. It is probably the classic text of why do we, you know, what do we do for children's ministry? But understand that what God is telling His people, you know, they're about to enter into the promised land. How do you keep this land I'm giving you? How do you respond to this grace I'm giving you? And it's all about one generation teaching the next generation. And when do we teach it? Well, you teach it all the days of your life, that when you go in, when you come out, all of that, you keep His statutes and His commandments. And then here's the Shema, of course, that's the testimony of faith of the Jewish people. And it says, teach them diligently. Think about what diligently means in a student ministry context. Teaching diligently in that context means you need to understand their context. And how do you take the Word of God and bring it to bear on their life? All the times when you're walking in, lying down, rise, bind them as a sign, you're always before you, that the Word of God shapes your life. We would say develop a Christian world and life view. And so this, this is not just children. This is throughout the developmental time as you're working with students and into college. Now, Danny Mitchell, who used to be on our staff at CDM, said something a number of years ago, and I said, that's gold. He said, youth are not objects of the Great Commission. They are agents of the Great Commission. This is a major change. You do sometimes have children who would share the gospel, but especially as you're moving up in age, part of their maturity is for a student to be able to be not just an object, let's pour more information into their lives, but let's engage them in this task of making disciples of every tribe, tongue, and nation. What I've observed in working with PCA churches is the, broadly speaking, the mistakes that are made is that our leadership, and here I'm talking to you elders who oversee the ministry, that you just take children's ministry models and impose them on student ministry. That's a mistake. You're not recognizing the growth and the maturity that comes in the life of your church. Or you fast forward all the way to adult ministry and say, they're out of of kids' ministry, now let's put them into the adult classes and you don't recognize that's a, there's a developmental aspect to this type of discipleship. One of the things, and this I've learned this from the team, 50 years of the PCA, the what has not changed, but how we do it has changed drastically. 
And I'm not just talking about how our culture changes, how our, our youth take in information, interact with each other, what they process, the struggles they're dealing with. All of that is how do we bring the Word of God to bear. One of the things we say at CDM is we want to see a culture of discipleship in the PCA that is based on God's Word and the development of relationships in the covenant community. Word-based, relationally driven. And that's what we're hoping to help you do through our student ministry team. This is a slide I use when I teach uh, discipleship at RTS in Atlanta. And it has to do with the learning process. How do people learn? And you might say this is oversimplification. I will say in, in many ways it is. But here's basic things. Every person comes into a learning situation with some part of knowledge. What we, that's their luggage that they're bringing into the situation. And then you as a teacher are trying to create disequilibrium where you're trying to make things, you're stirring things up, but what you're trying to do is create in the learner a need to know more. Sometimes it's what you're presenting. Sometimes you're getting them to think deep, more deeply about their life, but the, or sometimes it's just circumstances come into their life and they're sensing, I don't have enough in my knowledge to know how to deal with this. Now, if, you're deal- if you bring too much disequilibrium into it, it causes it to spare for the student. But if it's too little, then they say, this is irrelevant. I- this doesn't connect with me. And so it's a very, when you're working with your teachers, and this is how I teach it when I'm teaching the seminary students, that's a- it's an art that you, you don't assume, and sometimes you have to, you have to get feedback. How, how are we doing? How are we creating this, this situation where they realize the steady state is inadequate, the new information comes into play, and then you're helping them assimilate and adapt the new information so that they come to a new steady state. So a change is occurring, and what we say in the world of education is someone doesn't, know, doesn't know something new until they're able to change their behavior. So when actions come out of it, it's just potential knowledge up here, is, is what we like to say in the world of education. So you want them to change their, it might be they change their thinking in the sense that their worldview changes, but they're also, their behavior will change, which in theological circles is known as what? Sanctification. God's word leads to sanctification. And you're helping these students grow in that way. So what do we need? We need a tailored and intentional student ministry. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? What's your goal? And you might say, of course, that's easy. That's Brothers and sisters, as I talk to churches around our denomination, we just sort of stumble into this type of ministry. We don't think intentionally about what are we doing, why are we doing it, and what's our goal. That's why I have these guys. And I'm going to pitch it to Matt because he knows more about this. When you think about children's ministry, oftentimes I think of that through the lens of... um, 
of systematic theology. We're trying to teach them who God is and who man is and what the word of God is and who the church is and uh, what redemption is and what the end times are. And, and we're trying to teach them ultimately kind of this idea of systematic theology. And so often, especially in the PCA, by the time our students hit middle school, they are full to the brim with biblical knowledge but they don't have any idea what that actually looks like in real life. So as they grow and develop, our middle school ministries need to begin to focus on what is the practical theology of it. How do you take all this information and all these things that they've learned so that they can begin to play them out and live it out in everyday life? You talk about what does a prayer life look like or what does it look like to have personal devotions or what do you do in worship or how do you engage cultural issues like sexuality and so many other things and so on and so on and the list can continues. But what we're trying to do is help our middle schoolers understand that. And then as they get to high school, we start to move into a little bit more of what I would define as biblical theology. Let's take a look at what the whole of the Bible says and how does that make a difference in our everyday lives? What difference does it make as we live? And helping our high school students walk through that process and coming alongside of it, uh, it helps them as they transition into college to be able to hear and learn and answer some of those questions that they face as they're no longer under mom and dad's roof. And so as we we think about this in student ministry, are we as parents, uh, especially so I've had, uh, my youngest is now a senior in high school, and the people I love the most uh, in, my, in my kids' lives are those other people who are preaching the gospel to them. Because I've had so many youth leaders tell things to my own personal kids, and they're like, oh, wow, that's really cool. I'm like, I've told you that 10,000 times. And they're like, Yeah, but he said it better. They don't say that, but they're like, he said it better. And I've gotten to do the same thing. I've had parents walk up to me and they're like, yeah, like Matt told us this. I'm like, yeah, I I know you've said that 10,000 times. I just got to be the not parent who got to reinforce what you're talking about. So in student ministry, it's beginning to have that that tailored uh, ministry to our students, which one of the significant pieces of that is we need to have in student ministry fruitful discipleship that is word-based and relationally driven. And so several years ago, I was meeting with a young youth pastor. It was in the middle of a a presbytery. Uh, We had a presbytery overnight. I'm meeting with this guy. We're sitting outside on a beautiful Michigan night. And, uh, And he looks at me and he goes, okay, or I'm sorry, I had made a flippant statement in our comment. I'm like, yeah, kind of all youth ministries kind of do the same thing. We all do large group. We all do small group. We all do outreach events. We all do camps, retreats, and mission trips. And at some level, we all do student leadership. We all kind of do the same thing. And he stops and he looks at me and he goes, so what makes some student ministries better than others? Well, what he was really getting at is what is it that makes some student ministries thrive as opposed to others? And what an amazing conversation that that then generated. And when you take the conversation we had, you can really boil it down into these two ideas of word-based and relationally driven. Uh, a, A student ministry, as we think about our student ministries, need to be word-based in that they are gospel-centered first and foremost. Uh, They are word-based in that they are scripturally, they're driven by the word of God. 
and they're word-based in that we put strategic vision and planning into our student ministry. We put heavy amounts of intentionality into it. Jesus always had a plan with every single person that he interacted with. And as youth pastors and as churches and as elders, as parents, we need to have that same kind of intentionality and plan based on the word of God and based on the gospel for our students. But they're also relationally driven, and there's many, many different ways in which this relationship happens. But there needs to be a relationship between youth leaders and their volunteers. You need to have a relationship between youth leaders and volunteers unto parents and students. We need to have uh, relationships, uh, a good relationship in communication to our pastors, to our leaders, to our parents, to our sessions about what's going on. And there needs to be good communication from all of those into our student ministry. I, I think in student ministry, uh, I always argue that you should, you should always be communicating things at least five different ways. If you're not communicating something to your parents and families and leaders in at least five different ways, nobody has any idea what's going on, and it ultimately the youth pastor gets in trouble. And so for you as, as pastors and sessions and church leaders, Help your youth pastors think through those things so that they can grow and develop in those areas. One of the other key relational components is to have consistency. Consistency of your programs, consistency of your events laid out months and months out. Uh, I like to drive the rest of my church crazy because I plan my calendar out for our student ministry a year out. And they're all like, why are you planning that far out? Because my audience is middle school and high school families. And middle school and high school families are absolutely crazy busy and have events packed into their lives all the time. So if we want to have a, if we want to come alongside our parents, they need to know what's going on. If I don't have our summer camp dates set and established by January 1st and our summer camp doesn't happen until August, I start getting text messages from parents going, when is your summer conference? And I really, as a youth pastor, I need to have that ability to text them back immediately and say, these are our dates. We've already had them established. I won't tell them this, but I had already communicated it to them. They just didn't pay attention until it mattered, but it was already there. And so that communication piece with them helps grow the relationship. And then I think probably one of the most significant foundational pieces of a thriving student ministry is support from pastors, from sessions, and from parents. If a student ministry doesn't have public and private encouragement, support from pastors and sessions and parents, that youth pastor is going to feel like they are out on their own. They're going to become disenfranchised. They're going to get frustrated. The church is going to get frustrated with them when they're treated as though they are out on an island. And what is it that that support looks like? Uh, in my time at New City, I have had elders come on one night of a retreat with us. I've had an elder come to our entire summer conference with us. I had an elder show up at our Christmas party, and they just volunteered and said, hey, we want to come check this out. Hey, man, you want to talk about making a youth pastor feel loved? As a pastor and elder, show up. It's unbelievable. We have parents who come and cook food for events. We have parents who are like, hey, I'll come drive. We have parents who uh, are volunteer and serve as leaders in our ministry. And all of those demonstrate a great amount of support for our student ministry. And the best thing that all of them do 
is our parents and our pastor and our elders actively have their kids involved in our student ministry. And the amount of support and making that a priority for them demonstrates to the rest of the church the value of this ministry. And it's one of the best ways that we can support our ministries. And then the the final piece to begin to think through on this slide is that student ministry looks different across our denomination. And it depends on whether you're in an urban, a suburban, or a rural context. It depends on schools. It depends on biblical uh, literacy. It depends on the size of your church of what you do. So if you go back uh, to my conversation about every student ministry kind of has the same five elements to it. Um, When you think about that, large groups, depending on your church, if you're in a more suburban context, they tend to move more towards Sunday nights for large groups. Rural contexts move towards a little bit more Wednesday nights, small groups. Sometimes they meet throughout the week. Sometimes they meet in one connected night. Uh, Outreach events can vary based on what the kids' interests are, what the socioeconomic situation is. Sometimes you do events based out of your church. Sometimes you take kids to Cedar Point or Six Flags or Dollywood or any varying different places. One of, at New City, one of our most effective outreach events where kids always bring their uh, friends to is going to a corn maze every September. I've done corn mazes in almost every church I've ever been in. It's had very few kids. For some reason, corn maze among our ministry, our kids love coming to it. So I make sure that I do that every single year and make it be one of those things because it's something that the kids in Southeast Michigan have a blast. And it's not even the kids in Southeast Michigan. It's the kids in Southeast Michigan at New City Presbyterian Church love going to this event. So I do that event. And so those outreach events of getting creative um, when it comes to camps and retreats. Some churches, uh, you're going to do a retreat at your own church. Some churches, you're going to have joint presbytery retreats. Uh, In Michigan, we've started several years ago, we started both a middle school and a high school winter retreat. And one of the coolest parts about this is this is a group uh, of about eight or nine churches. The largest church brings like 20, 25 kids to the retreat. And we have one church this past year that brought two. And so it just creates a great opportunity for us to come together. And it just works because of where we are, that our presbytery joins together and our presbytery churches have gotten super excited about that. Uh, When I was at Perimeter and at a really big church, uh, our winter retreat was our, we would do our worship sessions and all of those types of things in a conference center. And then during the day, we would hang out at Universal. Um, It was just a different context. And we had kids who were inviting friends and reaching out to their friends through that. And so it just really depends on what your context is. My dad uh, uh, is a pastor down in Florida. And for many years, he would do a mission trip out of his house. All the kids in his church would come spend the night in their spare bedrooms. And uh, and they would then go out during the day and they would go serve in their community. And that was their most well-attended event of anything that they did. So how do you find and discover those things? You just experiment. And you begin to figure out what is it that works and clicks in your context, which we'll come back to this in just a minute. But I'm going to hand it over to Steve. Great words. So <clears throat> just some questions that you might want to think about. For your church when it comes to student ministry. Some, some of you here may have big churches. 
uh, medium size. Some of you guys have small churches, and you're like, I can't, we can't even afford to hire uh, any kind of, of student ministry pastor right now. That's okay. I still think there are some important questions that a church and its leadership needs to ask when it comes to the idea of student ministry. And so one of them is why have a student ministry? That goes back to sort of what Stephen was talking about at the beginning, and that's oftentimes where we feed these debates. You know, our students are growing up in the context of families, and we're just a church of families, and we're loving each other. Well, I want to tell you that there is a great exodus that is happening amongst the young people of our church. And really, it's happening. I think many of you have heard the statistics about what has been classified as the nuns, those who identify as non-Christians, and the ways in which they're leaving the church. But statistics will, will show that somewhere they say between 40 to 50% of high school students who graduate from your church from high school will not return to the church after college. I've worked at our church for 25 years, and I kind of balked the first time I heard that statistic, and then I began to look. And I began to look at the students that we've had over the years And I found out it was absolutely true. And so there is a great exodus. But I'll tell you what, with that great exodus comes a great opportunity. We have a huge opportunity to reach a generation because this is a spiritually hungry generation. They're spiritually open to lots of things, which is why they need the Bible. They need very clear guidance and direction in the gospel. But they are are a spiritually hungry hungry uh, generation. Again, uh, statistics will tell you that 80% of, of people who give their life to Christ do so before the age of 18. And that should just tell you the value of children's ministry and student ministry. And that's why we love CDM um, and their work within the, our denomination to elevate children's ministry and student ministry uh, in our churches. Because that is a huge opportunity for us to reach them. I think a student ministry also gives an opportunity for your students who are, when I say insiders, are covenant kids who have grown up in the church and, and uh, have come through the Sunday school program and are now in the, in, whether it's a high school Sunday school class or the youth group. They need a context to do mission. And we want to see those students use the gifts that God has given them to reach their peers and their friends in their world. And that could be their schools, their sports teams, their jobs. Um, There's a student who is involved in our ministry, and his name is Clay. Uh, Clay came to faith about a year ago. And he came to faith because his good friend, Stephen, who grew up in our church... And was part of our youth ministry, began asking us, who were part of a small group, to pray for his friend Clay. Because Clay had come from a a family situation that was really hard. Really hard. In fact, his his father, his his biological father, is in prison for murder. And uh, he said, pray for Clay. He's my friend from high school. I would love for him to know Jesus. So he invited Clay. Clay started coming to youth group. Um, and opportunities began to develop. We began to talk about the gospel. And then um, probably about six months ago, we sat at a coffee shop. It was me and Stephen and Clay. And 
And Stephen got to pray with Clay as he embraced the gospel for the first time. And then Stephen got to stand with Clay when Clay was baptized into our church. How amazing is that? But our students need those opportunities to see themselves as mission agents in God's kingdom and his world. Well, what about goals? What kind of goals should our church have for student ministry? I always think it's funny when we think that student ministry goals should look completely different than the church goals. I mean, God's goals for the church really are the same as what it's being called to do with students, same with children, and that is the call to make disciples. If we boil it all down, that's what God has called his church to do and to be. And so our student ministry really should be about how do we make disciples. And so disciples incorporate everything from evangelism to Bible study to community. And I think there are four key elements with that, that at least we embrace uh, that is part of that discipleship. Uh, Part of one is discipleship is done in the context of community. And so students need each other. They need their peers. Um, They need community within the greater body of the church. And I'll talk a little bit more of that in a second. Um, obviously, when we've already talked about this, students, Matt did a great job talking about how much our students need God's word. But along with the word, they need doctrine. They need to learn how to take God's word. Um, and they need a, a clear, Christ, biblical-centered worldview to take a look at the world that's around them. These students, when they graduate high school, many will head off to secular universities who do not have a Christian worldview, who do not have a Christ-centered worldview, are we preparing them to engage with what they're about to encounter and experience? Um, And so, and, and mission. You know, I don't think our students have to wait to be used for God's kingdom. They can be used right now um, to be agents of his kingdom. And I don't mean just your take a mission trip, which is a part of that but that our students are discipled in such a way that they see that they are part of God's agents uh, for the kingdom. And so I think uh, I got one more I want to say. Nope, you're good. Um, And so I think part of our goal is how do we build lifelong disciples? We want our students, I want to change that statistic that says 50% of our kids are, I want... I want that to change. Um, our church got to be a part of uh, a study that the Fuller Youth Institute did um, a number of years ago. And Fuller was one of the first ones who had kind of gotten a hold of this idea that students were leaving the church and not coming back. And so at the Fuller Youth Institute, they said, well, instead of studying all these students who left, let's take the students who stuck, so to speak, and see if we can find anything consistent about why they stayed to be a part of the church. And so uh, it ended up producing a book, which was called Sticky Faith. Um, and there were, there were a number of things, but I wanted to highlight four that I think are, are valuable for us to think about when it comes to our student ministry in the church. The first one is they found is that students who stuck really understood the true gospel. Um, and that's really, in a sense, up and against. I don't know how familiar if you guys have heard of moralistic therapeutic deism, um, MTD. Uh, Christian Smith wrote a book called Soul Searching. Um, and it was not necessarily a Christian book, but he studied over 5,000 teenagers. 
And they sort of use this term to summarize sort of the religious philosophy of the American teenager. And he described it in this way, um, Anthony, moralistic, therapeutic deists. And he said what he found was that there was very little difference between students from the world and students in the church. And that their bottom line belief is that there's a God who desires them to be good and moral. And this same God just wants them to be happy. And this same God set the world spinning into motion. He sits up there. He is available if you're desperate and you need to ask him, but he's not involved intricately every day in life. And the more and more I talk to students, I find that that's true. And our students need to understand the true gospel. They need to understand their desperate need for Christ, not just for their salvation, but for each and every day they live as followers of Christ. So rooted in the gospel, intergenerational relationships they found. They found that students who were connected outside of just other students, that they were connected into the life of the church. That's why family ministry is important, um, is absolutely essential. They talk about something called a five-to-one ratio. In youth ministry, we used to always say, you know what's great is if we could have one adult uh, in my leadership for every five kids. Man, that would be awesome. For every five kids, I have one adult. This idea says, no, I think it should be the other way around. What if every child or student in your church had five adults in their lives who were praying for them, walking with them? It doesn't mean they're youth leaders, but it could be, uh, it could be uh, some of the grandparents in your church. It could be a coach. It could be um, just people who are connected through small groups or Bible studies, but there is a community of people that surround each kid. Um, serving was another uh, mark that, uh, that students who found that there was a place for them to serve and use their gifts, even as students, set a pattern for their future. One of the things we have always done and we like to continue to do is we like to see our students involved in all the areas of church life that they can be. We want them on the stage um, playing instruments or helping and be involved with uh, the worship uh, that uh, our students are ushering. Uh, We use a lot of them. We have our college students will work in our high school ministry. Our high school students work in our junior high, middle school ministry, and all of them will work in our children's ministry. Um, And they see themselves as vitally connected. And then finally, that there is a safe place for them to struggle and doubt. And sometimes that has to be outside of their parents. They need another person they can trust and that they know it's okay to say, man, I'm really hurting. I question, I struggle, I doubt, and to be allowed room for it to be okay. I'm going to kick it back to Matt here. And so now we kind of ask the question a little bit of, so where do we begin? Like, what, where, where does it start? And perhaps expectations is not the word that you necessarily would have initially thought would be the place that we begin to start with this. So leading into the pandemic, and then it has significantly been amplified since the pandemic, there seems to be an increasing number of youth leaders getting let go or fired from their churches. And I've had so many conversations over the last four years or so about times that this has happened 
that I've started to ask the question of what is going on. Now, I'm not talking about the youth leaders who have gotten let go because of significant moral failure. I'm talking about different situations that youth leaders have been let go in. And one of the things I began to figure out as a, as a bottom line and an underlying principle of this is there was an unmet expectations and uncommunicated expectations that were going on. And so in the last few years, uh, I know, uh, have been friends with or know youth pastors who have been let go because they wanted to integrate students into the life of the church, but leadership wanted student ministry growth. I've known youth pastors who were let go because uh, they were going after discipleship, but leadership wanted an attractional ministry. I've heard of youth pastors or know of youth pastors getting let go let go because they sought to implement changes that leadership desired, thought they were going after it. Leadership walked in one day and said, no, you're not. We're going to let you go. And the person left, lost, or people have lost, left, lost and confused. I've heard of youth pastors and no youth pastors who have gotten heat or who have gotten fired because the pastors or elders' kids didn't like the youth group. And there was questions over whether those kids were even Christians or not. And they expected their youth pastor to be the great savior. And when it didn't line up, all of a sudden they're like, well, we need to make a change and we need to fix something. And so you have these unmet expectations that oftentimes church leadership doesn't even realize that they have. If you're a church leader and you have never articulated what your expectations are for your student ministry, I promise you, you have them. You absolutely have expectations for your student ministry and for your youth leaders, whether they're volunteer, part-time, full-time, or you have multiple staff in your church. There are expectations that exist. And so what we as leaders in the church have to continuously be doing is communicating to people what those expectations are. And when do we do that? But we begin to do that when someone is hired at the very, very beginning. So the the opening pages of Sustainable Youth Ministry, which if you've not had that book and you are in the market and searching for student ministry, even if you've read it before, I'd encourage you to go back and look at it again. But the opening remarks in that book talk about a pastor being or a a session being frustrated that they've hired like three youth pastors in the last four years and they just keep turning it over and over and over. And ultimately, a lot of what that comes down to is this idea of expectations. And then DeVries, as he points out in his book, he goes on to eventually say that every youth pastor, every youth leader, whether they're volunteer, part-time or full-time, Every pastor in the church, every leader in the church at some level is an interim, meaning that there was somebody there before you and there will be somebody there after you. And so as a result, it's really the leadership of the church that really needs to identify and communicate who we are, what we want, what we long for and desire in a student ministry and how we want to minister to students and come alongside parents and families in that ministry. And so in that hiring process, as church leaders, identify what those expectations are. What do you want? What do you long for? What are your desires? And then begin to look for that youth pastor and that youth leader, like I said, whether it's a volunteer or it's somebody who's full-time or somewhere in between, begin to look for that person that can help you and partner with you uh, in that. And if you already have a youth leader that you're frustrated with, 
then to begin that conversation with them. Begin to talk about where we are, through, whether it's through working on strategic plans together or it's in an annual review process. Whatever that is, begin to work with them about, okay, let's, us as a leadership, identify what our expectations are. Let's talk to this youth leader about what their expectations are. And now let's begin to work together to begin to get these things aligned so that we can begin to thrive as a ministry in our church. But here's the other piece that begins to play in to that as those expectations are communicated is we also need to manage those expectations. Expectations will always, always, always be changing. They will always be shifting. I I had one year at one church I served at where uh, we were going through our student leadership recruitment process And as we're getting student leaders to go through their application and interview process in our student ministry, all of a sudden I realized I had all girls. And I was like, okay, I need to go after some guys. It didn't matter what I did. I could not get a single guy in our ministry to serve on our student leadership team. So I had to shift. What did our student leadership team do? What was our student ministry leadership team going to look like that year? Uh, one of the other, uh, when I got to New City, we were super middle school heavy. Then we went through the pandemic and somehow things have shifted and now our student ministry is super high school uh, heavy. And then our senior pastor resigned suddenly a year ago and I'm the only pastor on staff. So we had to have a couple other people step in and help lead in our student ministry. And all through that, what we wanted, what we hoped for, what we dreamed for our student ministry had to keep shifting a little bit so that we were ministering to the students that God had brought to us. And so as we think about those expectations when you realize that the expectations aren't lining up with what you had hoped, here are a few things to think about. Are those expectations biblical? Are those expectations realistic? Are those expectations understood and communicated to the leaders in the ministry? Have those expectations been communicated with parents and that they know what's going on? And then finally, how do those expectations need to be adjusted throughout the years? We must stay fluid in that. And we also must continuously be in communication with one another. Um, CDM and uh, our next-gen team will just often get a lot of people just asking questions. And one of the biggest questions that comes is, help me find a youth pastor. Help me find a person to lead our church. Um, I, wish, I, wish there was, uh, I wish there was just a huge vault of great youth pastors and that you come and ask and we can just pull the right one out of the vault and be like, here you are. But I will tell you, and one of the reasons why we're here is uh, there are more churches looking for, for people to do student ministry than we have candidates that are willing to do it. We're seeing less and less people view and consider student ministry as a lifelong calling. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. We don't have time to get into that, um, but I'd love to talk to you more about that. Um, but if you are looking and I encourage all of you, no matter what size you need to have somebody, whether they're a volunteer, whether they're a paid intern or whether they're a part-time or full-time staff, find some people in your church who can run and do student ministry for you. Where do I find them? I always say, start in your own church. Um, our senior pastor at Chapelgate taught us that he says the best people 
to serve on your staff more than likely will come from within because they know you, they know your philosophy, they know your ethos, they know your context, um, and, uh, and, and not only hire from within, but build from within, build your future, see students, create intern programs, those kind of things can help. Um, but like-minded seminaries, uh, and Christian colleges, there are exhibition halls full of them. They often have job boards. They have graduates who are looking to get involved somewhere. Uh, RYM stands for, for Reformed Youth Ministries, um, and they have um, uh, places in which, uh, and they know candidates. Um, but personal and local networking also is a great way uh, to do things. Use and leverage your networks in your presbytery. Contact, uh, if there's a church down the road that's got a, a larger youth ministry, they might have a lot, they might know people or might even have people from within that they'd be able to refer you to. But you do have to do some networking. And the last thing I'll say is maybe it's possible that the best candidate for your job at your church um, doesn't even know they're looking for that job right now. Um, and so I know in times where we've been hiring, I'll go to people who I say, who I think are some really amazing people and gifted, and I'll just say to them, I have no idea if you're looking or interested, but you are the kind of person uh, that we would see uh, leading our students. Would you be interested in talking more? Um, And I think sometimes we have to ask uh, and be willing to ask who those people are. Last thing, and Matt mentioned it, and uh, we're just about out of time. Um, How do I support my, my youth pastor? And we've said a lot of the things. I do think relationship between uh, your senior pastor and your youth pastor is important. Um, Oftentimes, I've heard stories of the first uh, that anytime they would get any kind of uh, meeting with their senior pastor or any kind of note or email, it was always because they did something wrong or they were in trouble or somebody was mad at them. What if senior pastor just took time to write some notes of encouragement, to just say, hey, I'm really thankful for you, to take them to lunch, to spend time together, to write them encouraging notes, to have that relational foundation that can be there so that when those harder conversations can happen, um, they are leveraged in the context of trust and relationship that's there. And I think opportunity to meet, so whether it's with a pastor or with a session, that they're known. I think another way is to give them access to training. Um, Our certification, which we're offering, I think is an exciting way to get people student ministry certification by some of the top veteran youth people in our denomination, Um, interacting both by learning video and then live through Zoom conversations. Um, But there are other conferences and training in books they can do. And the last thing I would say is trust them. You've hired them to lead your students. They're the ones who know your student ministry best. And unless they've given you reason not to trust them, it speaks volumes when you trust their opinion, when you trust their wisdom, and you trust their insight. Um, I don't know, Matt, you want to say anything really fast about just Stephen kind of talked about at the beginning, but so we would love to have you all engage with us. Uh, we've got three great opportunities with PCA Next Gen. We've got a conference, uh, like we said earlier, at New City, October 16th through the 18th. Fall is a wonderful time to be in Michigan. There was an intentional reason we chose fall. And as Stephen said, not January or 
April because it's just nasty. Um, certification starts September 2023, and then we have a podcast uh, that says it starts September 2023, but that's actually ongoing. Go to PCANextGen.com, and that'll give you great information. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.